That is part of the heritage of this place, isn't it? The younger, the older, working together, loving each other, learning from one another. And we're glad you're here this morning. Whether you've been coming a while or if you're new, we welcome you to our Lord's. We are a rowdy bunch sometimes. We're a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. And I'm sitting there thinking what a visitor might think. Or maybe someone who's been coming three or four weeks. Why do you guys shout? Why would you get excited in worship? And my response would be, how can we contain ourselves? And I think of what I do and other friends at an OU football game or an OSU football game. We go nuts. And that is a little leather ball that we're talking about. We're singing about the risen king. And so my response would be, how do we keep from shouting and clapping and declaring who he is together? Now, we do make space here, don't we? If you're the silent type and the contemplative type, we do that as well. So not everyone has to shout all the time. We're not into emotionalism. We're into passionate worship and whatever the Lord is doing, we respond accordingly. Might be absolute silence. It might mean shouting. It's all in scripture, isn't it? So if it's in scripture, then we are open to it more, Lord, right? Um, I wanna mention something before we look into Psalm 110 this morning. We're looking at the kingdom of God. I just want to mention that Steve Nicholson is visiting again. He was a mentor to me. He's a friend of many of you, and we go back over 25 years. He's coming again March 7th and 8th on a Thursday and a Friday, and he's going to hold a small conference on the kingdom of God. We're going to invite Bridgeway Church, Frontline Church, um, Crestwood Vineyard and others, and he's going to talk about experiencing the kingdom on that Friday, the 8th, from 7 to 9 o'clock, and then he's going to meet with our leaders on Thursday, and so C-group leaders and others, you've gotten an email about that. I just want you to prioritize with everything going on. Make sure you come. Steve's last visit was strategic and really helpful, and I know that he's got some things in his heart to help us, all right? One other thing here. I have been thinking about what we do here on Sunday mornings, and I just want to let you know we're getting to know each other in new ways, right? The whole church, all of us, and that includes even what we're doing on Sunday morning. I just want to say that our goal here is to help you see and encounter the Lord, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to encounter Jesus. And what we're inviting you into is not a relationship with a book, but we're inviting you into an encounter with the living word himself. So whoever is teaching and preaching on a Sunday morning, just to let you know what's happening behind the scene, our goal is to open the scriptures and say, come and encounter the living resurrected Jesus. And there may be times where we do three steps to overcoming anxiety or something like that. Other churches do that really well. What we do is open the scriptures and say, come and encounter the living word himself. And I personally believe that there is a place for three steps to overcoming anxiety, but really a vision of the resurrected Jesus is is what gets you over anxiety, is what heals your marriage, is what helps you overcome addiction. All right, so I just wanna let you know what's going on here. Is that all right? So we're in part five in our series on the kingdom of God. And we are exploring the kingdom, the dynamic rule and reign of God. 
And last week, Mike, if you were here, talked about seeing this picture of the kingdom in 1 Kings 4. And he talked about David and Solomon and how that gives us a glimpse of what the kingdom of God looks like. We've looked at Genesis 1, Genesis 12. We looked at the book of Exodus. And we're seeing that a thread runs through all of scripture, this major theme or motif, and it is the kingdom of God. It was in God's heart from the beginning. And so what we're doing is we're walking through different portions of scripture, beginning in the Old Testament, and frankly, the Old Testament is oftentimes neglected in series like this. So I want us to see through the first five books of Moses, all the way through into the writings, into Psalms, that the kingdom of God runs all the way through and, and unites all of these different parts of Scripture. So today, you can look at Psalm 110. We are going to look at what I think is one of the most important Psalms. It is a song about the messianic ruler of God's kingdom. And what we're going to see here is it consists of two promises. We're going to walk through these promises, comment on them in light of the kingdom of God that we're seeking. Psalm 110 says this, hear the word of God. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends out from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your foes. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day you lead your forces on the holy mountains. From the womb of the morning, like dew, your youth will come to you. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter heads over the wide earth. He will drink from the stream by the path. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So Lord, I, I just ask as we look into your word, that you would speak to us. And I just tell you, we really don't know much, Lord. We, we open ourselves like children, and we want you to teach us, and we ask Holy Spirit, the one who inspired these words, that you would open our minds and hearts to understand. Amen? So the first promise here in Psalm 110 is about universal kingship. Verses 1 through 3 talk about this. You can see it there. And Psalm 110.1 says, the Lord says. Interesting. This is prophetic speech. Do you remember when we looked in Exodus 3 about the one who spoke to Moses, revealing the name of God? I am. This is the same I am who is speaking here. And Old Testament scholars call this a prophetic oracle, meaning that Yahweh is speaking to and through David, the psalmist. So the word of the Lord is coming. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear these seven verses, there's lots of questions. We're going to walk through that. But it also seems too big for any human king. Do you see that? Do you feel that? It's like Saul's armor. So some scholars might say, well, this is actually about David and the subsequent kings in his line. No, this is too massive. This is too big. It only fits one person 
in human history. So we're going to see that. Yes, in some sense it will describe the Davidic kingship, but ultimately it only fits the Messiah, Jesus. This is a particularly important verse. It's mentioned more than any other verse in the New Testament. So the New Testament references this 25 times. Do you think that's important? If they're looking back over the whole of scripture from Genesis to Malachi, and this passage right here is referenced over two dozen times, we wanna perk up, don't we? We wanna pay attention here. Jesus himself quotes this verse in Matthew 22, and he's citing this to demonstrate that he, the Messiah in the flesh, is actually greater than David. You can go back and look at that. It's Matthew 22, 41 through 46. Now, look at this here. The the language here is important. Verse one, what do you see here? The Lord says to my Lord. Interesting here. The early church loved this because it says the Lord Yahweh is saying to my Lord Adonai. So David is somehow prophetically hearing a conversation between two divine figures. And this verse right here actually makes space for the early Christians to understand how can we be monotheistic? How can we believe in one God and at the same time this Messiah figure also appears to share in divinity? This verse right here is why it is cited so many times. The Lord says to my Lord. And so David is acknowledging there's something very rich, very important that's happening here. If you look, two things are promised, right? Look at the text. You will sit at my right hand, which we know is the place of power and honor. And secondly, what's it say? I will make your enemies a footstool. In the ancient world, if a king conquered another king, they would literally bring the king and his court out, and the conquering king would place his feet on the neck or on the back of that conquering king. And that king became an Ottoman, became a footstool for the conquering king's feet. That is the vision here. We're going to see what this means though because Jesus isn't going around conquering political kings. This has a spiritual application that we're going to see in just a minute. So the New Testament, frequently cites this. The Apostle Peter, do you remember after Pentecost in Acts 2, he cites this verse right here. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 at verse 25, he says, quoting this passage, that Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. When? Has this happened? Explain this to me. This takes us into the thick of kingdom theology. Do you wonder too as you hear that? Hey, when is this thing going to happen? Tell me. So we're going to look at this more in the coming weeks, but I will tell you one thing. When Jesus came through his incarnation, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, the kingdom of God broke in to human history in a decisive way. Amen? That's what we're celebrating This morning, the kingdom of God is on the move, touching the nations of the earth right now. It's unlike any other time. We're seeing the gospel go to the ends of the earth. 
In Christ, God won. Game over. Game is over. Christ is victorious. Satan, demons, sickness, sin, death, it is all under his feet. It's all defeated. But the full realization of Christ's victory awaits. In other words, the kingdom is already and not yet. It's already here, but it's not yet consummated. There's a very helpful analogy that this German guy named Oskar Kuhlmann came up with. I've already told you I love geeky theology. This is a theologian. He came up with an analogy from World War II to demonstrate the already and the not yet. Do you want to hear it? Is it all right if I share this a little bit? In June of 1944, the Allied troops stormed the beaches at Normandy, northwest France, and pushed the German army all the way back to Germany. And this became known as what? D-Day, right? D-Day. And, but the battle ensued for 11 more months. And over half a million people died after D-Day. The Allied forces were fighting the Germans, and it wasn't for nearly a year that the Germans finally surrendered and a ceasefire occurred on V-Day, May 8th, 1945. Oskar Kuhlmann looks at this event this interim time, and he says that is a perfect picture of the kingdom of God invading human history. D-Day, church, has already occurred. The enemy has been pushed back, and now we're in this interim time of fighting, and there is real casualty, and it is difficult. Amanda was asking me, why is this? Why, why would God do that? And I said, honey, will you answer that and let me know, please? <laughs> It is a very difficult question, but I know one thing. God is shaping us in the process. Rather than cleaning the whole thing up and saying, hey, why don't you do the victory march? God invites us into the battle. He has defanged the enemy. Game over, but we get to engage in the process and battle Satan and demons and sin and addiction and these various things. And we know one day that V-Day is coming. The church gets to work in this interim time in the power of the Holy Spirit to apply the kingdom of God in the process. Amen? So we are people of the kingdom. We are people of the already and the not yet. And that's why we're looking at this in these weeks. Look at verse 2. And I do, I wanted to spend most of the time in verses 1 and 2 because that's the section that's cited in the New Testament the most. So verse 2 says this, The Lord sends out from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your foes. This speaks of the authority and might that God gives to the Messianic King. And as Mike explained last week, we understand this through some pictures that we have in the Old Testament. They're almost like Polaroids. And we got to see David and Solomon ruling to some measure. But again, this far outstrips anything that happened with David and Solomon. We were praying this as a staff on Tuesday morning. And I was just puzzling over this. All the authority and power and even some of the violence we're going to look at in a minute. And I was just saying, Lord, what is the scepter? And I heard him say, 
look up here. That is the scepter by which I rule, the cross of Jesus. So when the Father says to the Son, rule in the midst of your enemies, he doesn't rule through harshness and meanness. He rules through the cross. What conquered the Roman Empire? This, the death of the Messiah. Not the Messiah coming with a sword, but the Messiah dying and giving himself over to express the love of the Father. This is our message. Stretch forth your scepter, the love of God. That is what conquers hearts, is it not? Not meanness, not harshness, but the love of the Father expressed through this amazing King, the Lord Jesus. I heard a story this week in light of sensing that. I heard a story about a guy named James who lived in Austin. And he walked the streets of Austin for 15 years, doing everything he could, chasing that next high. He crushed and snorted pain pills. He did heroin. He smoked crack. Whatever he could get his hands on, James wanted it. And he lost his life, basically. He drifted from his girlfriend, and they had two sons, and he lost his job. I mean, he just lost everything. He said his entire house was covered with mold and so, so was his life. One day, someone invited James to come to a community group. And James says, what do I have to lose? My life is a wreck. I'm losing my girlfriend, my two kids. So he went to this community group in someone's house and he met a guy named Paul. And Paul said, how about I mentor you? Again, James says, I don't even know what that means. My life is a wreck but I'm willing to do it. Beautiful long story, but the short of it is, over the days and months, James, in this community, got sober. He beat drugs. He married that lady from the church. The Lord salvaged his family, and he talks about a new craving that began to emerge in his heart, not for drugs, but for Jesus, and for serving other people, and going and rescuing others, so here we are 15 years later, and James is out on the very streets where he was an addict and rescuing other meth addicts and heroin addicts. And his message is this, Jesus conquers your heart through love. And so he is out sharing the message of the king and plundering the work of the enemy. The Lord's giving us stories like that, isn't he? In the coming days and months, we are going to encounter many like James. We may have some of some people like James among us today. The Lord can defeat your addiction. He can set you free. You open your heart to the love of God, and it will change you. The Lord's going to give us many, many stories like this, and I'm excited about it. Look at verse 3 here. What happens in the midst of the rule and reign of the king? It says your people will offer themselves willingly on this day. This is interesting. I, I read this week that some people think that what's being described here is not only messianic in the future, but it's actually a ceremony that David and the other kings would have enacted. And so it's called a, an enthronement ceremony. And it may have been when David first won Jerusalem or perhaps when he brought the ark back. And so they would ceremonially reenact this each year. 
and you can hear suggestions of this, can't you? On, on the day of your power, on the day that you lead your forces. And this seems kind of strange, does it not at verse three, what it says here? From the womb of the morning, it gets rather poetic, doesn't it? It's Hebrew poetry. Like dew, your youth will come to you. It's translated in different ways. It's actually one of the most cryptic places in the entire Old Testament. But I think that it says two things. It means that the Lord will renew the strength of the king. His youth will come back to him like dew in the morning. But it also means that young warriors, the youth will gather to the king. When the kingdom moves, when the king is exalted, the young people volunteer freely. They say, Lord, I want in. I give you myself. I want to be a servant of the king. I want to carry the power of the king. And today we've got a group that they're at world mandate doing this very thing, volunteering freely in the day of God's power. So what is this text saying to us? One thing it's saying is that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. And that Jesus is building his church through us. His kingdom is coming in this day of power right now. And young and old get to participate in it. This brings us to the second promise. And this is brief, right? The second promise here is the eternal priesthood. Verses four through seven. So we've got the universal kingship and now we have the eternal priesthood. Verses four through seven. In verse one, the Lord said, and now what is the verb here? The Lord is sworn. So this means that God, Yahweh, has determined this is going to happen. And he's promised to accomplish this. So the messianic king is also a priest. And you're saying, who cares? Big deal. Maybe some of you are not, but what does this mean for me in 2019? It means several things. And again, think about it. The early church located this and said this is critically important for people of faith, for followers of Jesus. And I, what I want to do here is just briefly explain who is this Melchizedek character? Do some of you wonder that? Say Melchizedek. Melchizedek. It's a difficult name to pronounce here. It's a cryptic person. He's only mentioned three times in all of Scripture. Here and in Genesis 14 and in the book of Hebrews. That's it. Now, what is the point of this Melchizedek person? And what is the point of a, a, an eternal priesthood? Right? I want to show you briefly. First of all, for the original readers of this, Psalm 110.4, Melchizedek was the ideal priest and king. He was the only one we encountered because typically the priest and the king were separate individuals. So the text is saying here the Messiah will actually be a king and a priest like Melchizedek. If you read in Genesis 14, this Melchizedek figure pops into the narrative out of nowhere. He appears, and do you remember what happens in this narrative, this story? He interacts with Abraham. He serves Abraham wine and bread, 
which is rather interesting. And then how does Abraham respond to this king priest? He gives him 10% of what he has. And so the author of Hebrews looks back at this and says, this is prefiguring Christ. There's something very, very important here. In this moment, Abraham is actually submitting himself to the priest Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews comes along and says, Christ himself is greater than any of the priests, even greater than Abraham. And within Abraham are Aaron and Levi and all the other priests. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, Christ is greater, greater than any of the priests. That is why this is so important here. And we were singing about this this morning. The priest opens the Holy of Holies to us, church. That's why this is important. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, there was a long process by which the people of God could even get remotely close to the Holy God. And now what happens in the New Testament? Christ has opened up the very Holy of Holies to you and to me. You say, well, I'm a mess. I'm not sure I'm ready to go into the Holy of Holies. Jesus says, come in. We sang about it this morning. Approach the throne of grace with boldness, with courage. But I'm sinful, but I'm broken, but I'm not holy. And Jesus says, come into the Holy of Holies and I will make you holy. That is the message here. It is the gospel that's being declared here through the priesthood of Jesus. He doesn't say, get your life together and then once a year, you can come and engage with me. He says, no, come into the Holy, Holy, Holy of Holies as often as you will, and I'll change you. I'll transform you. I will make you like myself. So very quickly here, I want us to, to wrap up and look at the final verses here because they're rather strange. Verse 6 here, 5 and 6, we see some of this challenging language. Is it not when you read about the corpses and about the violence here. You see the Lord is at your right hand. Verse five, he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment. I thought we're people of grace. So I just want to say something and then I'll leave us with, with this. We interpret passages like this through the lens of love. Who came up with that? Jesus. Matthew 22, people come to him and say, tell us, what is the law all about? And Jesus boils it down to two things, and what are they, church? Love for God and love for neighbor. And what does he go on to say in Matthew 22? All of the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament is summarized and hangs on these two things. So when we come to a passage like this, we interpret this through love for God and love for people. What does that mean for us? We are not violent people. Someone might say, well, what about the coming judgment? And I would say, let God deal with that. It's a mystery. The apostles in Acts 1 couldn't figure it out. They were asking Jesus, are you establishing the kingdom now? And he says, I'm about to pour out my spirit. So I think he says the same thing to us. When we look at a passage like this, we're not deluding the idea that God is holy, and that it's a terrifying thing to be in the presence of the creator of the universe, but we understand passages like this through the lens of love. 
right? And, the, and that's the message that we have going out into the world. We deal with a passage like this by understanding it spiritually. Do we not? Is the church called to go out and crusade and talk about conquering the nations? No, 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 no. We're called to share the message of the cross, the love of God in Jesus, and that is what conquers the nations. And when he comes back, whatever that looks like, however he sees fit to wrap up the kingdom is up to him. We, in the meantime, are called to share the message, the good news of the kingdom of God. Isn't that right? So this brings us to the final verse. Look at verse seven. It's rather strange. He will drink, the Messiah will drink from the stream by the path, and therefore he will lift up his head. This is a very deliberate wording here. It's actually going back to Gideon. Do you remember the story of Gideon where he was selecting 300 people for an army? And how were they selected? They were kneeling down and bringing the water up to their mouth in vigilance. And so what we're seeing here is the author is saying the Messiah is going to lead the armies of God. And he will refresh himself. He's vigilant. He's looking. He's a greater leader than even Gideon. And so the Lord is inviting us this morning as we worship, as we look at him in scripture. The Messiah is saying, I want to give you fresh power. This morning, not only am I a king, but you're my kingly people. I've created you to rule and reign with me, and I fill you with the Holy Spirit. The New Testament goes on to talk about not only is he a priest, but the Apostle Peter says, Who else is a royal priesthood? You and me. Christians are called to mediate the presence of God to walk in holiness, to share his presence with other people. So Lord, we ask you this morning, I ask for you to speak to us, to continue to speak to us through the week, that we would recognize that we are your kingdom people, that you've given us authority and power, that we're seated with you in heavenly places. And Jesus, I pray that you would show us about being your priestly people, that we would realize that we are holy. You make us holy through your death, your resurrection. Why don't we stand?